Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Aslihan Gürbüzay. And today we are speaking with Natalie Rothman. Natalie is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. What we're going to be speaking about today is dragomans. And Natalie is the perfect person to speak about this because she has written extensively on the topic. Uh, she had a book come out a few years ago, Brokering Empire, and she's continuing to work on this uh, and is preparing future research on the topic. And dragomans, as our listeners might know, were essentially men that interpreted and negotiated between the Ottomans and other Mediterranean powers in the region in the early modern period. And so what we're going to be talking about today is how they mediated imperial relations, but also constructed a lot of European knowledge about the Orient, about the Ottoman Empire. So let's start with maybe the most basic question here, kind of who are the dragomans? I think one of the things that you've mentioned so much is that these aren't just interpreters. They actually conduct a whole variety of different roles. So what, what were they actually up to? What tasks did they do? Absolutely. And I think we often think of them as diplomatic interpreters or in the Ottoman courtly case, people who interpreted between official dom and various populations, whether in court or in other com more commercial settings. But one of the things that is very interesting about dragomans is that they were also heavily literate and involved in the production of texts, and in some cases also visual imagery about the Ottoman Empire and sometimes about Islam and other dimensions of the local societies and cultures in which they operated. So they're not only translating, but they're also collecting information. They're collecting information, and when we say that they're translating, so at, at least in translation studies, there is a very sharp distinction between interpreting and translation, uh, with the assumption that interpreting is a largely oral activity. Right. And when we say diplomatic interpreters, you know, the image, at least that I had in my head growing up, uh, maybe that kind of ages me is that, um, or dates me, is uh, kind of a Soviet interpreter whispering in the ear of a diplomat um, in a kind of world summit with, with the U.S. ambassador. Right, um, so kind of, on behind. Right, so kind of uh, someone who's in the shadows, who's not supposed to be very visible. Uh, there is a whole scholarship in translation studies about the invisibility of the translator. What the dragomans are doing is anything but, in the sense, first of all, that they're not just um, repeating the words of others, but actually generating their own knowledge. In the Ottoman case, they're often involved in negotiations solo. So when they are the dragoman of ex-embassy, they often would go themselves to conduct business or negotiations with their Ottoman counterpart, uh, with the ambassador nowhere in sight, and then report back. So there is both a temporal dimension to this interaction mm. and their own kind of own agency, if you will, in, in defining the parameters of the interaction. And then there is a very strong textual written dimension to their work as well. They're translating official records uh, between Ottoman Turkish and a variety of languages, mostly Italian, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. even when they're working for non-Italianate consulates, um, as well as into other languages. And they're producing their own writings, which, again, is a very interesting dimension of their work that hasn't hardly been studied. Mm. So, I mean, who are they? Are they people in locals in the Ottoman Empire who take up this position? Or are they, you know, are they coming from Venice or uh, parts of the Italian mm -hmm. peninsula? Where, where, where mm -hmm. do these dragomans emerge from? So the simple answer is both. There are both people who were born and raised in Istanbul and 
to a decreasing extent, people moving to Istanbul specifically to become dragomans, uh, whether from Italian metropoles like uh, like Venice or from the borderlands between the Venetian and Ottoman states in what today we would call the Balkans, Dalmatia in particular. But I think a more interesting answer to that is that who are the dragomans, I think, goes to the heart of the question of who are Ottomans mm -hmm. in the sense that their processes of socialization, of becoming dragomans, mimic and to some extent partake in an Ottoman understanding of who can become part of the courtly elite. Mm -hmm. um, yes, many of them experience some kind of mobility in order to become dragomans, uh, particularly in the earlier centuries, moving from and elsewhere. But they also undergo a very robust process of reshaping of who they are in order to do the job. Um, we often assume that if they were, um, and here I'm speaking pr primarily to the Venetian ones because they are both the most the largest, the most influential cadre of dragomans in terms of providing the template for other embassies and the ones that I've studied most systematically through archival research. We often think of them as, you know, descendants of Italianate settlers in the wake of the Fourth Crusade, so whether Genoese or Venetians who were sitting in Galata in mm -hmm. the suburb of what was then Constantinople for many centuries, and then with the Ottoman takeover, kind of refashioning themselves and ultimately become kind of the core of this dragoman group. And to some extent, that is correct. Some of the leading families that kind of con kept contributing dragomans to Venice um, a gener generation after generation were descendants of these Genoese and Venetian settlers. But what's remarkable, I think, is that by the 16th and 17th centuries, by and large, these families have been absorbed into a Hellenic or post-Hellenic milieu. Their mm -hmm. children grow up learning primarily Greek at home. That's the language that they speak with their families. And so they have to be re-Italianized before they can even learn Ottoman in mm. order to be able to interact with their Venetian masters. They're certainly not in any evident way part of a Venetian kind of world that are much more part of an Ottoman uh, space in which there is both mobility between the islands and the big cities, um, where Greek is a language of scholarship and, and, and higher learning, where there is mobility kind of built into the life trajectories of mm. a lot of members of the elite. And in that sense, I think part of what I'm trying to show in my research is that these are not European quote-unquote transplants in a foreign world the way they've been recuperated into a lot of the nationalist narratives of the Balkans in the late 18th and 19th century as these heroes that come to the dangerous world of the Ottomans to to help Europeans in kind of checking the, the Ottoman expansion but rather they're very much part of an Ottoman elite world uh, in terms of their social relations, in terms of their kinship relations, in terms of their professional trajectories. They're very much part of that world. So from what you've just said, it sounds like kinship and education are the two parameters that make a dragoman. Can you give us an example of a figure or a family just to have a clear image of who these people are in a social, social sense? Absolutely. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that these are both very important and closely interconnected dimensions of what makes a dragoman a dragoman. Mm -hmm. In terms of kinship, this is an incredibly endogamic, that is, inward marrying group of people. Um, I mentioned earlier that some dragomans are 
locally born in Istanbul, uh, or rather in, in Pera and Galata, starting in the 16th century, and others come from other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. But by the 17th century, they're actually so intermarried over multiple generations that it's very difficult to say who is, say, a Salvago and who is a Tarsia, because their mothers and sisters and nieces are often the vehicle through which these families all become heavily interconnected and multiply so. So that's that's absolutely one aspect of this. Um, in order to give you a specific example, I would have to go back to these very elaborate kinship trees that I've reconstructed to tell you exactly who's who. But there are certain families, about a dozen of them, that each and every generation from the late 16th or early 17th century all the way throughout the 17th century produced one and often multiple dragomans uh, for the Venetians. And then their brothers or their sons-in-law would often also furnish dragomans or become dragomans hmm. for the French, for the English, for the Dutch, for the Russians, for the Ragusans. Uh, the list goes on and on for the Habsburgs when they do finally establish an embassy there, a permanent embassy. So in that sense, their kinship both brings the dragomans together as a cast, but it also creates kinship across embassy lines and completely muddles the water as to who has allegiance to whom, right, uh, because the him. dinner tables where all this information gets circulated b very far and wide, and we haven't even talked about their extensive connections to the court, to the Ottoman court itself. So maybe we should move on to there because this is, you know, we just talked about kinship, but then the other side of Asla's question was education. Mm -hmm. So if they're growing up speaking Greek amongst themselves... How are they figuring out Turkish? Why, do, why don't the ambassadors and these foreign powers, resident ambassadors in Istanbul, know Turkish themselves? Mm -hmm. How do they set up these ties to the Ottoman court then? Mm -hmm. The question of languages is fraud. I would say the one way of answering this is kind of the Bernard Lewis answer. Oh, they weren't interested. They weren't curious. Yeah. But I think I think a more interesting answer is, well, what opportunities were there to learn Ottoman Turkish anywhere outside the Ottoman Empire in the 17th century? And the answer is very far, few and far between. Uh, and in fact, dragomans, as I show in the book I'm working on right now, play a decisive role in making that a possibility later on. Mm. Um, if you look at the centers of Ottomanist knowledge production outside the empire, starting from the 1670s or so, first and foremost, Vienna, and then Paris. In both contexts, it is dragomans who play a decisive role in establishing the institutional structures for that hmm. to be the case. But in terms of how dragomans learn the language, it's very much in keeping with early modern practices of knowledge transfer, it's largely through apprenticeship and shadowing more experienced dragomans. So they join embassies usually as young young men, sometimes even older children, as early as eight or nine years old. I'm, I'm speaking about the Venetian case now, which is somewhat different than others, but again, a template for a lot of what unfolds later on. And then they start out learning Ottoman Turkish in situ with a hoja, with a, with a master who comes to the house daily to teach them. There are a lot of very amusing anecdotes about the utter failure of the system to some extent um, and repeated complaints about the hoja either being too drunk or not knowing enough Greek or Italian to interact with the children, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow they do manage to pick up the language and I think mostly because they actually follow other dragomans around and pick it up through some 
form of immersion, yeah. what we would now call immersion, and that system proves incredibly successful. We know that some dragomans were so fluent that they actually gained the respect of the scholars at court who hmm. saw them as their kind of true intellectual interlocutors. So in that sense, they do manage to achieve a certain level of fluency. But I think what's most important to understand about dragomans, and this goes back to the earlier question of what are dragomans, is that linguistic facility is really not the be-all, end-all of a successful dragoman, and that cultural competence and a sense of social uh, fluency in the protocols of courtly society is of paramount importance. We have records suggesting that people were kept on the Venetian payroll as dragomans with very, very limited Ottoman Turkish, <laughs> simply because they were too valuable in terms of the knowledge they had, the diplomatic mm. um, secrets that they kept that would have been too too dangerous to let them go. Um, they would immediately be picked up by the British or the right. French. In that sense, dragomans are not just linguistic intermediaries or not just translators. Um, I would argue that all translators are not just translators, but certainly in the case of dragomans, what's most important is that they know how to carry themselves in court, that they know how to approach Ottoman officialdom with the right amount of respect and using the cultural codes that would convey that respect in mm. order to be able to, to, get their, to get things done, basically something that Venetian and other ambassadors arriving for limited periods of time were completely clueless about. They could not properly commensurate diplomatic protocols. Uh, if To use Subramaniam's very helpful framework for a moment, uh, they didn't know how to do things in the Ottoman context that would translate properly to how diplomacy is done in their own courts. And right. therefore they needed dragomans in order to do this mediation for them. And on occasion also to emphasize the difference for their own gain. So it, it, it served everyone's interest to claim that the Ottomans were somehow culturally impenetrable, very different, um, mm. requiring this extra level of translation. This worked well for the dragomans, this worked well for the foreign ambassadors who were not tasked with picking up a language in C2. So, I mean, this is one of the things I enjoy the most about your research is that you emphasize how the Dragomans kind of created their the sense of exoticism about the Ottomans, built up this world that seems unapproachable mm -hmm. to further their own position in mm -hmm. it. Absolutely, yeah. And and I think we, we see this also in the kinds of textual production that begins to pick up in the second half of the 17th century and continues in full force in the early 18th. If we think of the most canonical example of Antoine Galland and the Thousand and One Nights, that's, that's perhaps a beautiful example in that Galland, who himself arrived in Istanbul initially in the 1670s, in early 1670, I believe, as an apprentice dragoman uh, for the French legation, makes his career of producing these tales, which we now know were in part in close collaboration with a Damascene um, schol young scholar who arrived in Paris and was telling him some of these stories. But many of the stories he was able to pick up through manuscripts that are part of the very thriving literary culture of Istanbul, mm. uh, where he gains access to these kinds of materials, whether in Arabic or in Persian or in Ottoman Turkish. But, uh, but the, the important point there is that dragomans, precisely because they are the ones with both linguistic access and social access to elite circles in Istanbul, 
are refract the knowledge that is produced in Istanbul and convey it to European reading publics, but they do it in a way that to some extent already mirrors the priorities and the cultural preferences and the tastes of the Ottoman elite. They don't just do it single-handedly, and they certainly don't do this the way kind of a, a watered-down version of Said would have it as kind of hapless European metropolitans who stumble upon um, a very foreign orient. They do it as full participants in the culture uh, who are selectively choosing what to convey to the reading publics in Europe, but they do this already being shaped by Ottoman elite culture. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Neil Shafir. I'm speaking with Natalie Rothman, and I'm with Aslahan Gurbizad. We're speaking about dragomans. So Natalie, um, the way you frame and you narrate the story of dragomans is really interesting because you, you show how um, their profession is connected to the emergence of Oriental studies and in the West. And the way you show it is you show that the origins of Orientalism is a story that we could actually start in Istanbul as opposed to the usual Western Europe focus. Would you like to elaborate a bit more uh, on that special shift in your work? Sure. I, I don't know that, that I would necessarily say the start of Orientalism. I think as historians, we're always a bit apprehensive about yeah. pinpointing something to, sure. to a starting point. And I certainly wouldn't claim that the entire edifice of Orientalist scholarship starts in Istanbul or even is centered on Istanbul. But certainly part of what's coming out of my research on dragomans and the production of knowledge is that they play a very decisive role in not just producing positive knowledge, so not just the kinds, the, sorry, not just not just translating texts or creating mm -hmm. linguistic knowledge, but there are choices of specific genres to, on which to focus, I, I would argue, has to do both with how they understand their own positionality in relation to this diplomatic world, so a massive preference for certain linguistic as well as literary and historical genres to the neglect of many other kinds mm -hmm. of knowledge that don't get represented as much. So partly it's because of the diplomatic nexus in which they operate and the kinds of interests that their masters are showing in specific kinds of text, and partly precisely because they're products of elite Ottoman culture. Mm -hmm. So tarikh is seen as kind of the epitome of certain kinds of knowledge about who the Ottomans are, where they're coming from. Poetry hardly ever gets translated, even huh. though we know now that poetry was such a significant aspect of courtly culture. And that, I think, also has to do with the languages in which poetry was produced, the kind of linguistic competence or right. limitations that these dragomans had, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it's interesting to think about Istanbul as a place where certain kinds of knowledge get uh, produced, get circulated in very effective ways through the diplomatic dispatches and, and reports, as well as the independent work that dragomans do and increasingly do as attached to these th this phenomenon of the sojourning 
scholar bibliographer with contacts to diplomatic circles. Um, so I'm thinking here of Marsili and, and others who travel, uh, Pietro della Valle for sure, people who travel to Istanbul as affluent gentlemen, spend right. time living in an embassy or a consulate, often the Venetian consulate specifically, live there for quite some time. But when we start looking at their diaries, we realize that they often worked very closely with embassy dragomans in order to mediate the world around hmm. them to them. And then the question becomes, so what role do these dragomans play in the selection of texts that these individuals acquired, in the choices of which texts to translate, of how these texts are translated, what kind of implicit knowledge is left un left in the translation such that it is presumed to be accessible to the to the reader readership right. in another language and what kinds of knowledge needs constant glossing and what kind of glossing actually goes on. So that's that's an aspect of my project that I'm very, very committed to and methodologically it poses a lot of challenges to develop a framework in which I can look at different translations and say when when a certain dragoman translates, they take for granted that the readers need a gloss for terms like vizir or... So can you give us an example, maybe like a specific example of one of these texts or moments of multi-sided interpretation that's going on here? Absolutely. So so one of the chapters in this book that I'm completing, The Dragoman Renaissance, looks at three different translations by Venetian dragomans of Ottoman texts into Italian and shows how there is a, a kind of chronological arc to their translation strategies and how the translations produced by Salvago, this is Giovanni Battista Salvago writing in 1622, so shortly after the regicide of Osman II, and he's, he's writing a text that does not claim to be a translation, even though, from all I can gather, it is, if not a direct translation of Tuhi, it is actually um, very much an elaboration of the same perspective that Baki Tezjan, among others, has written extensively about, of um, a certain kind of the Janissaries version of the regicide. Yeah. Um, and, and what's fascinating about the text is that it unabashedly just adopts that same perspective and relates it to a European readership that wouldn't know the first thing about these events and just makes it so as a kind of positive knowledge of this is this is what the regicide was all about and it uses a lot of linguistic strategies in order to take the janissary's perspective and make it the reader's own own so so it becomes kind of a voicing mechanism through which the janissaries become familiar become understandable become relatable when we look at, at later translations of of ottoman chronicles um, we have the example of tomazo tarsia uh, writing translating Vejihi's um in uh, 1684, so about two decades after the text itself was completed and after Vejihi died, we notice slight interventions, but I would argue quite significant ones in terms of how there is constant glossing happening in the text that are made more explicit. So if in, in Salvago's case, he would just use narrative forms to make culturally specific information commensurate with with Italian terminology. So he, he would avoid using too many foreignisms. Right. Um, in Tarsia's case, we begin to notice more and more of these foreignisms, which are then explicitly glossed in the text in the form of 
meaning or choe that is. So there is there is a clear break, and the translator kind of inserting himself to say, and now I'm going to give you the gloss. And then, so it seems like these people are not only you know they're doing a lot of translation work of these chronicles, but they're also giving a lot of glosses or explaining aspects of Ottoman society. How does this build into you know a question of Oriental of mm-hmm. knowledge about the Orient, mm-hmm. about a sort of proto-Orientalism mm-hmm. that's developing in this place, and how you mentioned, for example, that some of these texts and these dragomans become kind of central to the task of, of teaching Turkish and creating a knowledge of Turkology, mm-hmm. in a sense, in, mm-hmm. in Austria and other places. Right. So I think, I think the answer is twofold. One is that these texts do become the available kind of lenses through which Europeans who do not know Ottoman Turkish can gain positive knowledge mm-hmm. about about the Ottoman world. I mentioned earlier these sojourning visitors who work with dragomans and their texts, of course, circulate far and wide and become very important. We also have the example of people in diplomatic service who themselves then become authors. So Paul Rico is the most mm-hmm. obvious example, who was, of course, the the English agent in Izmir for many years, and his writings about the Ottomans clearly reflect that familiarity with a mercantile milieu of a secondary commercial port. But the the other dimension beyond the the textual production per se is linguistics and, and knowledge of the Ottoman language, where we begin to see centers that are being established to train dragomans in places like Vienna and Paris, hmm. building on the personnel of retired dragomans, essentially, building on dictionaries and grammars that are produced either by dragomans themselves or explicitly for the purpose of training dragomen, uh, the dragoman corps. And those become the, the, real, the real nucleus for what later on becomes the Oriental Academy in Vienna, as well as what nowadays is INALCO, the, the institute in, in Paris that teaches foreign languages, oh, wow. but that is the direct descendant of the Collège Louis Le Grand, which was the institute for training dragomans and later on becomes a, a kind of an Oriental Academy. So there is a genealogy to foreign language uh, training and specifically to what we now call Oriental languages, mm-hmm. um, Ottoman, Turkish, Persian, and Arabic that goes back to these institutions. Now, obviously, there are other genealogies, and it's very important for me not to claim that the Mm -hmm. dragons are the be-all, end-all of Orientalism. Mm -hmm. For me, what's fascinating about this is the way that Ottoman Turkish makes it into this kind of holy trinity of the learned languages of Islam alongside Arabic and Persian, even though I would argue, and I think others would argue, it is only in Ottoman eyes that Ottoman Turkish is on the same footing with Mm -hmm. Persian and Arabic. If you look at Islamic scholarship in other parts of the Islamic world, certainly in South Asia or in Southeast Asia, then Ottoman Turkish becomes just one among regional languages. It is because of the political significance of the Ottomans as mediated, I would argue, through dragomans and their institutional infrastructure that Ottoman becomes of such import. And precisely because there is no older tradition of religious polemics and biblical exegesis and and study the way you have it for Arabic and to a certain extent for Persian, Mm. that Ottoman gets included in this canon. And it is because of its institutional kind of grounding in these settings that become so central for language instruction that Ottoman makes it to this kind of... So what you're saying is that normally Orientalists in like early modern Europe would be interested in Arabic or Hebrew because these are ultimately languages that go back to the Bible or some sort of biblical world that they can then access this history from. 
Whereas Ottoman Turkish would normally not be thought of as one of the lang- major languages of Islam because it doesn't have any of these auxiliary sciences that make a language truly important in the eyes of Muslims often, or Muslim scholars. And you're saying that because these scholars, these dragomans are building up Turkish as a language of diplomacy and in history and in information that it becomes seen as one of the central languages of Islam. Yeah, so I, w- I would say that it is because of their positionality as intermediaries between European scholarly elites and and their, and their Ottoman counterparts that this happens. So it, it's not that Dragomans single-handedly produced mm-hmm. this dynamic, but rather because there is, in Europe, there are no competing institutional frameworks through which Ottoman can be studied. And because the, the Dragomans are so central and so connected to the Ottomans and, and in some ways shaped by the same cultural perspectives that make them take for granted that Ottoman is an important language. Mm-hmm. And because of all the political and diplomatic interests that make relations with the Ottomans so essential, especially for the Habsburgs in the 18th century with the border in becoming such a, such a contested space, um, certainly for, for France and its complex but, but very tight connections to the Ottomans in terms of commercial interest, that this becomes an imperative to ensure that there is a, a group of people who, who command the language Dragomans really fill that gap mm-hmm. uh, institutionally um, and play a very important role in the specific kinds of Ottoman that is being taught. So one of the questions that rarely gets asked by linguists, but I think is of paramount importance, is why is it that Ottoman Turkish becomes a variety of Turkish that Europeans learn? Mm-hmm. Um, it is spoken by a very, very tiny fraction of the populace, and yet it becomes the defining variety, the defining dialect of, of Turkish for Europeans for many, many generations to come. It's, it's not terribly you surprising. Mean versus like Chagatai or do you or, mean like or, more local? Or, or even, or even Western, Western, Western uh, Turkish. I mean, there are, there are many spoken varieties that we know coexisted with Ottoman at the time in Antalya, in, right. in the Balkans. Those rarely make it into the textual production of authoritative language, mm. uh, language linguistic materials. So dictionaries, grammars, Phrase books, all these materials that dragomans and others are so keen to produce in the 17th century, often would both make explicit in their prefaces and in terms of their their vocabulary that that gets represented and and the phonology that gets represented. It is Ottoman Turkish as spoken in Istanbul by mm. a very rarefied group of people that gets picked up and represented right. as this is the Turkish language. Of course, now it's hard for us to even remember that th- there were other other possibilities, but but that becomes part of the kind of institutional and, and cultural edifice on which Ottoman studies and Turkology get built in, in Paris and, and Vienna, among other places. So it's really interesting that for uh, dragomans, you use this notion of go-between, and not only diplomatic, but also cultural and intellectual go-betweens. What I'm wondering is, in the same way as dragomans helped shape knowledge about Ottoman Turkey in the West, can we talk about them helping shape knowledge about Europe among the Ottoman elites or intellectuals? I think that's a really important question and one that I haven't studied directly, so I'm here building on the works of others, but we are beginning to recognize that indeed dragomans were an important link, perhaps not an exclusive link, but one important link, particularly in terms of matters scientific, making sure that knowledge did circulate between different different sites of cultural production. I'm deliberately 
trying to avoid this dichotomy of Europe and Ottomans, because I think many of the Ottoman elites in the 17th and 18th century still very much understood themselves as plugged into wider wider circuits. <laughs> and if you think about the, the dragomans at court, specifically working for the Ottoman court, we know that many of them spent time in Italy learning, studying at universities, or had diplomatic missions to parts of the world that today we would no doubt consider to be Europe, and were at the time part of, of, of the wider kind of Ottoman sphere of influence. So in that sense, I think, I think yes, dragomans are very, very important to, this, to these processes. They're not exclusively responsible for these circulations, but they do play a role. And I think there is, there is room for more scholarship on that, for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, so much I think of your, what your research does here is that it challenges this kind of earlier vision we have of Orientalism as just a variety of representations that were constructed by Europeans without any knowledge of the Orient itself, and that the Orient is ultimately inaccessible. But what you're really doing is kind of building, along with a, quite a few other people, like, you know, John Paul Gobriel or uh, Alex Pivilacqua, that a lot of this knowledge from the Ottoman Empire or other parts of the Mediterranean was making its way over to Europe, that there was some sort of uh, transfer of positive knowledge and done through these kind of important intermediaries, whether dragomans or other forms of translators. Absolutely, and I would be the first one to concede that my work would not be possible without the work of, of John Paul and Alex and others who are partaking in this, I think, reframing of, of the question of Orientalism to some extent. My only caveat would be that I think that to gloss the Ottomans as the Orient is, again, mm -hmm. uh, problematic doubly both because the Ottomans didn't necessarily think of themselves as the Orient as be, and because the Orient is a construct yes, of 19th yeah. century scholarship. Mm -hmm. and, and I think these, the, the chronologies of how this knowledge develops and what institutional frameworks evolve is, is crucial. I don't want to collapse all of it and say, oh, it was just pure Orientalism <laughs> in the 17th century, but rather think about the genealogies of, of how this emerges and what role Ottoman elites themselves in a variety of capacities play, play in this process. Well, thank you, Natalie, for this wonderful conversation. You know, unfortunately, there's so much more we could talk about. There's quite a few chapters in, your, in the book that you're working on that seemed ripe for conversation, and I urge our readers and listeners to uh, go check out Natalie's book when it comes out and to look at her other published work. So thank you again, Natalie, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was fun. <laughs> and to our listeners, if you want to find out more, check out our website. There'll be a short bibliography, and you can also go to our Facebook group. You can find all sorts of comments and pictures and other things we post related to the Ottoman Empire, the broader Middle East, Islamic world, anything interesting historically, we put it up there. And until the next episode, thank you.